The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, including Olas Media. Olas Media presents Inside the Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert. My aunt and my cousin were murdered. My, my brother was missing. She was babysitting her 22-month-old nephew, David. When Chase spotted the lone mother in her house, he decided to pounce. Almost every night I had dreams of uh, riding, riding my bike in the neighborhood and, uh, you know, all over the place. And you know, I just come up on, on him. I found my brother. Those were the dreams that I've had. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files. Inside the Crime Files is produced by Olas Media in San Diego, California. Welcome to Inside Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert podcast. I'm Anne-Marie Schubert. This podcast takes listeners inside and behind the scenes of the investigation and the prosecution of some of the most horrific and notorious criminal cases in California history. Today, we're going to talk in our second part about one of the most horrific and sadistic cases in Sacramento County history. This is the case of Richard Chase. Our first part uh, was the prosecutor and one of the investigators. That was Albert Loker and Carol Daly. And today, we're going to have our second part. And today, my guest is Kevin Ferreira. And Kevin lost three of his family members uh, to Richard Chase, who murdered them in 1978. He lost his brother, his cousin, and his aunt. So welcome, Kevin. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So let me just kind of explain to the listeners, Kevin, how you and I met. So you and I met about eight years or so ago. You live here in Sacramento. I think I was running for district attorney at the time when I first met you. And you happen to work in Sacramento in, in uh, I would say, the building trades industry. Fair to say? Yes. So we went to have coffee one day just to talk about some of the issues that are facing Sacramento. And I'm, I'm not going to forget this because we're sitting at a coffee shop. Uh, and in the middle of that conversation, you said to me, there's something I need to tell you. And I think you probably knew I had done DNA and I was involved in cold cases and things like that. and you then proceeded to tell me that your family was killed by Richard Chase. And I was um, taken aback. I understood the gravity of those crimes. I didn't know all the details because I was, I think you and I are the same age. Uh, I was probably 14 at the time that these crimes mm -hmm. occurred. Mm -hmm. And, but then you also told me kind of how you recovered uh, from that horrific crime. And so that's kind of partly why I wanted to have you on was because you are the, to some extent, you know, the human toll, as I, I describe it, you are, you are, you know, an example of how these crimes impact families in our communities. So I just really appreciate your willingness to come on here uh, and talk about, you know, what happened to your family, but also what happened to you afterwards, if that's all right. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you. So let's, let's start off by this. Um, first of all, um, 
January 1978, January 27th, I'm sure you remember it very well. How maybe you can just kind of first of all tell us who in your family was killed and just kind of uh, how old you were at the time. Yeah, um, 14, and I was 14 years old. Um, and the family members um, were m- my aunt Evelyn, uh, my cousin Jason, and my brother David. Evelyn's last name was Maroth, right? That's correct, yes. Okay, and just to get the listeners' understanding, this is the murder of your aunt Evelyn, your cousin Jason, who was six, and your brother David, who was. 22 uh, months old. 22 months old. Okay. Yeah. So um, maybe you can kind of tell us a little bit about your family dynamics. Like, you know, who was David's mom, all that, you know, who, where did you live? All that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, I was going to, at the time I was going to Foothill High School here in the Sacramento area. Uh, My father and my stepmom lived close to my aunt's house around the, the country club area. And, you know, and my, my stepmother, her name was Karen, and my father's name is Tony Ferreira. So and then on this particular day, uh, my Aunt Evelyn was babysitting my brother. Uh, you know, she had her son home as well, and they were planning a trip to go to the snow up I-80. And then that's when, you know, the tragedy happened. So your Aunt Evelyn babysitting your brother did Evelyn have other children as well? Yes. Um, you know, um, she had an older, has an older daughter, uh, Lori Maroth, and then uh, a son, Vernon Maroth. Okay. And where, were you close to your cousins, um, your brother? Yes. All, I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Lori and Vernon, I, I grew up with them, you know, so we were, we were, we were close cousins. And then are you living with your father and stepmom or are you living elsewhere at the time? I was living with my mother and my stepfather at the time. And so, you know, my, my father and Karen, you know, they you know, were living next to my uh, aunt. Okay. So your brother, David, was Karen and your dad's child. That's correct. Yes. Okay. So you know, maybe kind of walk us through this particular day, January 27th, 1978. How do you get notified? Actually, I was spending the night at a friend's house. And then um, another uh, friend's mother calls that friend's house, knowing that I was there and asked me to just come down the street to see her. And so I do. And then that's when uh, she told me what happened, that it was on the news. And, uh, you know, none of my family members, I heard it from a friend's mom before I heard it from any of my family. What did you, and you can tell us whatever you're comfortable with, what did you hear and what did you ultimately learn? I, I just, you know, my, my, my friend's mother uh, told me that, uh, you know, it's on the news and that, uh three of my family members were murdered and, and that I needed to get home. And so I did. Uh, And, um, and then at that time, you know, going to my father's house, you know, and my stepmom's house, I mean, it was a sad time. I mean, just, you know, people are crying and, uh, and that's all you could do. 
at this time, everyone knew that uh, my aunt and my cousin were murdered. My, my brother was missing. So there was always a hope that he would be found alive. And, uh, but my father already was uh, accepting the fact that he was, you know, dead. Your brother, David, was missing for about, what, two months or so before? Close to two months, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, kind of, you know, you're a teenager. You're a young teenager. Your brother's missing. Your aunt and your cousin have already, you know, are murdered. You know, what are you, what is that like between January and March when your brother was found? So at this time, um, you know, like I said, everybody is sad. You know, you're just relying on the information that the police are telling you with the investigation. And uh, and I had very limited access to that <laughs> um, right. in, into those conversations at the time. Um, but, uh, you know, basically all you could do is cry. You know, all that's what all the family members were we're doing and um, being a teenage boy, almost every night I had dreams of, uh, right. you know, I'm out riding, riding my bike in the neighborhood and, uh, you know, and all over the place. And you know, I just come up on, on him. I found my brother. Those were the dreams that I've had of, of always riding up somewhere and there he is. And uh, so, but, you know, that was never meant to be that way. Right. So how did, so in March of 78 is when David's body is found, right? Yes. So what did you, I mean, tell me how you found out about that and the circumstances, if you don't mind. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, with the family, the, uh, that, the, it, you know, David was found and uh, being a, uh, the age that I was, um, I was exposed to just very little detail, but I knew it was bad from how uh, the reaction from my uh, stepmother, Karen, who was a lovely woman. Right. And um, it was bad. What did you, I mean, sitting here today now, you're 58, right? 59. Okay. I mean, you obviously, I assume, now understand more the facts of what happened to your family. Oh, absolutely. I know um, pretty much, I guess, everything I need to know. Right. Right. Pretty disturbing. So, you know, kind of walk us through. You find out when you're 14, when your brother's found, then he gets arrested. You find out Chase gets arrested, right? Yep. Okay. So there was a trial that was done it was a change of venue went on in santa clara so kind of maybe were you involved not involved how much did you find out that kind of stuff um not not really that involved with the court cases i knew that uh you know uh my stepmom never missed one you know karen and you just heard very little about it but then you know it was through the trial uh i learned that uh of the, the mental condition of Richard Chase, you know, a sad thing on, you know, re- that circled around him as well. Right. Did you learn more about kind of what had happened to your aunt 
and your cousin and your brother through the trial or was it later in life that you found out more of the horrific details? Later in life. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, through the years, you know, I, I just remember hearing that, you know, a book was written and um, never read the book until probably two years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so, but, but there were details in the book that I already knew from coming across law enforcement people who uh, knew about the case, who knew me. So, um, you know, right. I, so, right. Mm-hmm. So Evelyn at the time had um, Lori and Vernon. How old were they at the time of the murders? Lori same age as me. And Vernon is a, about a, a year, year and a half. Can you describe for us kind of the impact this had at the time it had on, start with your dad, um, in terms of his sister and his nephew and his own son being killed? Yeah, um, it was really from that that uh, it, it, my dad just, he just wanted to leave here. He, he didn't want to live here at all anymore. And originally we're from Hawaii. And so um, eventually he he sold his business that he had at the time and um, moved to Hawaii to just to get away. He just didn't right. want to be around this and the memories, so to speak. I remember you telling me before about a conversation you had with your dad about I think you were 16 or so about the impact it had. You remember that? Yeah. yeah. So uh, at this time I'm, you know, I'm in Hawaii with my dad and, uh, you know, we were uh, together. We were talking about my brother, David, and, uh, you know, my, my father, um, because my parents divorced, I was spent most of my time with my mom, my mother. You know, when David came, when he, my father remarried, and then there's David. Um, my, I think my father believed that he could r- really be a father, and so he had all of his hopes and dreams within David. And so, when that happened to David, it just uh, shattered him, and it was like, uh, you know, the. The son he was hoping to have, he knew wouldn't happen. So, yeah. yeah. Did you guys have a, if, if it's okay to ask, did you have a strained relationship with your dad? Um, I, I guess not. It wasn't like horrible. It was just, um, there were times when, you know, I was like a standard teenager. I, I, I didn't, uh agree with certain things that, you know, my dad believed in and things like that. I think my dad was hoping that with David being under, you know, totally living with him, that right. there wouldn't be the, uh, the resistance that I was given. All righty. What about Karen, your stepmom? Did they, did the marriage last or did they? Did they no, up- no, 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 no. Um, so what happened is, is, um, Karen wanted to have another baby and uh, my father did not. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I assume though, how long after David was killed, did they divorce? 
oh not that not not long afterwards yeah uh i would say probably a year maybe okay okay mm-hmm. and then tell us um kevin your cousins Lori and vernon who were um mm-hmm. evelyn's other kids that survived what impact did you stay in touch with them you know, one yeah, of the things through that the years, yeah, at that time, I would go and visit, you know, them and um, at my uncle Burns' house. Right. And uh, they were staying there. But uh, they weren't having, it, it was hard on them. And uh, I can remember, I don't think there was any kind of counseling provided for anyone, yeah. to, be, to be honest. I know that uh, I think my cousin Lori struggles to this day with uh, the relationship with her mom that uh, the last thing in her memory of her mom was her and her mom were fighting. And, uh, and I think that just, uh, that's just too much for her. You know, I remember on the, uh, the Golden State Killer, one of the victims, um, that was killed. Her daughter was about Lori's age. The same thing. Last conversation she had was with her mom was an argument and it really changed the course of her life for many, many years. I mean, it's just, you know, Kevin, I always talk about the human toll of crime and it's, you know, those are things that you just really can't get over. So you, let's kind of go back to you in terms of your life path after all of this. I mean, you've lost three family members, including your own brother. I mean, I assume you graduate high school, but what's, what is your trajectory then? Right after high school, I went into the Marine Corps. And so from there, through boot camp, I learned that I was kind of a, a, a natural shooter. I went into the infantry, and then from there, you learn about other options. And I learned about the scout sniper school that the Marine Corps had, and I applied, got in. And so my whole motivation of that was what happened to my family. And that uh, myself, it was, uh, I'm going to learn these skills. And uh, if something like this ever happened again, I can do more than cry. Okay. So it was like the motivation was how to protect you and your family, really. Pretty much, yeah. So you had told me when we had coffee that, I think some folks said they didn't think you could do this. You could, you could be good at being a marksman. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So what happened? Uh, it just so happened. I, uh, you know, the, the whole motivation of, uh, you know, the tragedy of my family members, I actually finished uh, top of my class. And so uh, I was happy about that, but uh, I think the people who didn't think I could do it, or wouldn't uh, do very well at it um, were uh, my senior officers, you know, in the Marine Corps, I was kind of a, a low key person, didn't want uh, to really to be noticed or have a lot of attention, but, uh, but I studied. And so, um, so when I finished number one, it was a prize to a lot of people. And uh, my family members were really uh, taken back. You know, like, why would I, one, go into the infantry? And 
two, why would I become a sniper? You know, um, you know, what kind of skills is that when you're done with the military? And so, so, so you become basically a sniper for the military because not just what happened to your family, but this idea that perhaps if it ever happened again, you could protect them. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. How long were you in, um, in the military, in the Marines? Six years. Okay. And during that time, did you ever, I mean, were you ever in combat at all or maybe walk us through what, what you saw in the military? So in the military, um, you know, um, spent time in um, Southeast Asia and in Central America, you know, okay. so, you know, Panama, Honduras and stuff like that. And then why, why'd you ultimately get out? To be quite honest, at that time, there was no um, campaign, so to speak, wars or anything. Um, we were told that there were too many people in the Marine Corps and that the Marine Corps wanted to release folks. And it was pretty evident of that because all of a sudden there were jobs in the Marines where no one can get promoted. I mean, it, everything slowed down. Right. And so it was definitely a sign to get out. And so. How old were you when you got out of the Marines? 23. Okay. So you went in right after you turned 18. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, since this all happened to you and your family, I mean, what do you think is the most lasting memory you have about all of it? If you don't mind me asking. What can I say? It? It's a uh, Richard Chase. Um, how, why was he out in public? Right. Right. And uh, with his condition and, you know, it was something that happened under the governorship of uh, Ronald Reagan that he closed uh, mental institutions in the state. And Richard Chase had a severe mental issue and who shouldn't have been out in public. And uh, I had a high disdain for uh, Ronald Reagan that if it wasn't for that decision that he did, that maybe my family members would be here today. Yeah. I don't blame you on that one. I mean, especially in today's era when we see so many folks in our communities across the country that have serious mental health um, issues and are perhaps not getting the treatment that they need, right? I mean, Kevin, you know, sitting here today, talking today, I should say, we're 2022. You know, it's been 40-something years. Does this, do you think this crime... What happened to your family still affects you personally today? Yeah, I would say so to a degree. Uh, you know, I, I go for long periods of time without talking about it. Uh, but then some folks, once they learn, if I meet somebody new and they somehow they learn about it and uh, they ask questions. And so then at, at times, it, you know, it in the conversation, there could be breaking points in the conversation emotionally that uh, right. comes up, which I thought, which always surprised me because I thought, yeah, I think, you know, the crying's done, but it, right. it never is, it, it seems. It, you know, the uh, the hurt, the pain is, will still, it's still there. It just comes up. Right. 
One of the things that I think I've learned over 30 something years is, you know, when people are victims of violent crime, particularly murder, it changes how the surviving family members live, changes sometimes the professions they choose, like you, it changes how you raise your children, it changes your outlook on the world. Um, I'm just, first of all, I don't know, do you have kids? I have uh, one daughter. She's 31. Did it kind of change you in that outlook at all? I would say probably uh, protective. Um, I wanted her to learn how to protect herself. So as a child, I had her um, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I told her if she ever had to protect herself to do what she needs to do to protect herself. And if she ever had to do it, to be uh, as swift and as violent as she needs to be. And so um, she's a girl, <laughs> right? You know? right. So uh, I said, so the, you know, you want to surprise people by the time they figure out that you have some skills to protect yourself, you want it to be too late for them. And so, so that's how she was. She knew that, uh, to always be aware to, you know to this day i'm always i always scan uh, people notice that i i don't do too much eye contact with folks because i'm i'm always scanning around me i if i and if i do have eye contact with someone i'm i'm really listening to things around me and so um it's just uh a heightened awareness i guess i don't want to be caught by surprise yeah, I don't blame you on that one. It was, you know, during the course of this crime spree by Chase, it was the same time frame as the East Area Rapist slash Golden State Killer. I mean, did you, did you have that in your memory back then? Did oh, yeah, I remember, remember people that? talking about, the, uh, about that. Yeah, that was uh, something that people were definitely talking about. Even for years after the Richard Chase incident, I can remember uh, people talking about that. You know, even into my senior year in high school. Right, right. I mean, there was a lot of community concern going on. And then you have Chase, who's committing these horrific crimes of, you know, cannibalism and all that other stuff that goes with it, that I think it really um, changed the community in Sacramento quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So, so let me ask you this, just kind of like to wrap it all up, Kevin. I mean, as you sit here today as a 59 year old man, you know, one of the things I think is really important for the public to understand is the impact on victims. And, and you know, if you had one thing to share with the public, you know, about what happened to your family, what happened to you and your surviving family members, what do you think is the most important thing that the listeners take away? It's to, um, to be the best person you can be. It's probably the only thing you can do to honor your loved ones who have passed on tragically is to live the best life you can live and, uh, you know, not to be trapped in the torment of the loss, which is kind of like where my father is. It's just to be the best person you can be, help those around you that you can help. Because, right. you know, it really, you know, is to, you know, to honor them. It's the way, at least for me. It's the right. way to honor, you know, 
the memory of family members because my aunt was a good person. She she loved helping people. So when I can help someone, it does makes me feel like I'm doing something that she would have done. That's a very good lesson. Um, before I forget, I, I did want to ask, probably should have asked it earlier, but how did you feel when Chase, when you found out that Chase, one, was sentenced to death, but two, that he overdosed on death row? Yeah. Um, I, you know, to me, it's, it was, um, I didn't feel sorry for him at all. Right. But uh, I kind of questioned the overdosing. I'm mean, like, you know, how does that happen, you know, in a controlled right. environment? But, you know, I'm glad it happened. I didn't, you know, to me, it was like, why should this guy be able to breathe air when my family members aren't? Right. So that's kind of like how I took it. You know, one of the phrases that oftentimes is used in, in the criminal justice system is giving closure to families. And, you know, I've always kind of debated that that word. And I'm just curious Thank as you. we kind of, yeah, I mean, as, you, as we kind of wrap up. I don't up know what talk, that is. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I want to know. What do you think of this word closure when we talk about, you know, victims? Yeah, um, you know, I I'm, I don't know. I mean, I hear it you know, from other victims. Um, but um, I really don't know what they're talking about. To me, it's if uh, whoever's done this has been caught and, you know, and they are paying the penalty for what they've done, then, um, you know, like in my, in my family, I mean, we had the bodies of our loved ones. And so it's not like we didn't have, you know, a missing person that we've never found. So I, I don't know what that's like. The closure part, I, I, I don't know exactly what, what that means, what people are looking for when they say that. Um, I know that for me, but it's what I just said. It's, uh, you know, we have to move on. We have to be people. And to me, it's, you know, being the best person that you can be. If you're, if you're trapped in this torment and you're, you're not being um, like productive or, or lack of a better word, then, um, then they killed you too. Right. Right. And so, and so, um, to me, I, I, you know, that wasn't going to happen to me by a phantom bullet or whatever. It's just moving on and be the best person you can be. And, and with that, honor the memory of your loved ones. That's how I do it. Very good message. Well, I just want to thank you for your willingness to be on it. I don't know. Have you ever talked about it on a, on a public forum at all? No, you're the first. (laughs) Wow. Well, yeah. Yeah. You're the first. um, Well, I appreciate it because I think people, you know, I think we are challenged by is that when we decide what our policies are or our laws are in this state or this country, this is what we have to always be willing to talk about is the consequences and the impact of crime. Because if we're not willing to hear that or consider it, then we're, we're failing uh, in holding people accountable and, and acknowledging the true impact. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So. I do. Kevin, thank you so much for your willingness to share your story uh, to our listeners here. Thank you for joining in. You can find more podcasts on InsideCrimeFiles.com and you can join our mailing list. And remember, this is part two of a two-part series on the Richard Chinton Chase case. Thank you so much for listening. 
Inside the Crime Files is produced by Olas Media in San Diego, California. To listen to more episodes, visit InsideTheCrimeFiles.com. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files. Olas Media.